2: Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and guest host, Ben Weish.
3: I've been in, in a lot of pain um, for
0: what's been probably about 20 months now. Um, I've pretty much, you know, pretty much done everything that that I could to you know, to try and get my hip feeling feeling better and um you know hasn't hasn't helped loads. Um you know, I'm I'm in a better place than I was six months ago but you know, still still in a lot of pain.
2: This was supposed to be our Australian Open preview podcast when we just sort of meander around the tennis world, talk a bit about Djokovic, a bit about Nadal. Will Andy Murray be fit? But no, this is now the Andy Murray Memorial Podcast because anyone who was about to go to bed like me last night will have been alerted to the fact that Andy Murray gave an extremely emotional press conference in which he came in, started crying, left again and then came in to reveal that he thinks he may be at the end of his tennis career. Ben, what was your first thought when, when that news broke? Obviously, sympathy.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the writing has been on the wall for uh, for a little bit. Well, for quite a while, actually. But it was still totally surprising. Normally, sort of, communications in, in sport is so heavily controlled that you don't expect something out of the blue like that. Surprise soon subsided to uh, sadness and, and sympathy for him.
2: Do you think... I mean, I was at Wimbledon the day he limped out of that... Well, he was beaten by Sam Querrey, to be fair, in the quarterfinal, but he was never fit for the whole thing, and, and that was pretty clear. I was actually on court number one that day, where Djokovic retired with an elbow injury, and then I had to watch Chilic and Gilles Mueller in one of the worst games of tennis I've ever <coughs> seen. But do you think at that point, we saw sort of when this hip thing's been around a while?
1: Um, well, I mean, I didn't, because I... I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know uh, what the sort of prognosis of something like that. Obviously... The longer it went on, the smaller his chances seemed to be of returning. But uh, to be honest with you, I f- expected him to go into 2019 and, and give it a go, and uh, you know, hopefully,
2: he's s- been through a lot of injuries before, right? Like, like we know that he is a guy who yeah. has been through a lot of injuries.
1: Yeah, but other players have as well. Federer uh, came back uh, remarkably strongly, almost as if he'd never been away. When when he recently came back, and Nadal's been back a million times before. <laughs> y- you never know with yeah. these things.
2: I, I feel particularly sorry for him because I think, you know, he's what he's 31, turns 32 this year. None of his mates are retired. I know that uh, seems silly, but he will look around at Djokovic, basically they're born, what, like four days apart, right? Yeah. And think, ah, oh, wh- why can't I be like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, 31 nowadays. It used to be that 30 was pretty much the end of your career. I think Roddick called it a day at 30. Now 31, especially for, for one of the top players, is relatively young, so he must be very, very disappointed. Uh,
2: those tears, we, we've kind of got a bit used to Andy Murray's tears, sadly, especially in Australia, he <laughs> keeps losing in the final. Do you think there's an especial pain for it to happen at the Australian Open?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, he wanted to call it a day at uh, Wimbledon, um,
2: which he may yet, to be fair. He said, you know, that's my plan, but then I think about two minutes later, he said, but but I I'm not certain I'll be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, do you think he'll make it that far?
1: It was a tacit sort of admission that he doesn't think he can basically play. I mean, obviously he'll give it a go to 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 the best of his ability. But mm. I don't. I think from what I think you can interpret from what he said that he doesn't think that's on the cards.
2: Yeah, no, I, and that is sad. And I think my actual worry is that when he goes out against Roberto Batista Agut on Monday or Tuesday, he might win like five games. Like, he, uh, he might not even make it through three sets. Yeah. And and would that even be right? Would it even be right for him to go out and do that?
1: Yeah, I'm, well, it's just the modus operandi of his entire career was, is just to push himself as hard as possible and leave nothing out there. And I think he'll do the same. And he would... Uh, I don't think there's anyone who could persuade him not to give it a go, unless it was for the reason of his longevity and making it further into the year.
2: Mm. Uh, and there's, there really is n- no danger of that. I looked at his schedule the other day and... I was like, oh, yeah, he's booked into two tournaments in France in, in March. But he's just not going to play, sadly. If we look back at Andy Murray's career, I, I I've been doing it all day on the Brian Moore Show today, and it's kind of interesting because he comes from a, let's face it, before Andy and Jamie Murray, Scotland had no tradition of tennis. I, I, I couldn't name you another successful Scottish tennis player. I, I would struggle even to name one. I don't know if Jamie Baker has any history in Scotland. Yeah, I'm a Scottish not. Scottish name.
1: I, there, there must have been some, but none none come to mind. Because Elena Baltach is the only yeah, one. To have yeah, to part that's to. true.
2: But that, that's literally, in men's tennis, none. T- to do what he has done, and the Murray family as well, what they've done—that is a, a staggering achievement. I wonder the first memories, because you saw him in '05 at Wimbledon, right?
1: Yeah, I saw him the second-round win against uh, Radek Stepanek in in 2005 at the Wimbledon. World's ugliest tennis player. <laughs> uh, I remember I was there with my dad, and we'd been we'd seen uh, Sharapova and Nadal right. actually, who lost against Jill Muller. Um, and then I wanted to go for a sort of wander around the outside courts because it was only the second round and um, he said no 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 this this Murray kid's supposed to be and uh, you know there are hundreds of of sort of British tennis players who were supposed to be something and then turned out not to be Um, and
2: he would have been then reigning US Open boys
1: champ yep yep and in the march he uh, sort of won won a lot of plaudits for his appearance uh, in a Davis Cup tie away in israel and yeah he played with astounding maturity stepanek did make it easy for him to be fair i don't know if stepanek bothered to watch any of murray's sort of film at all because he just carried on with this relentless kamikaze uh serve and volley <laughs> against someone who would end up being one of the best returners and counter punches in in the world but um yeah he beat him in straight sets i uh, did incredibly well showed a maturity that really caught a lot of people's eye and then he followed uh, followed it up by going, uh, you know, he lost in the end to Nalbandian over five sets, but he went two sets to love up. And really, as I said, sort of, that's when people started paying attention.
2: And that was also when we sort of came across this young lad who was very talented, but also not fit. And, you know, as you say, he went two sets up against Nalbandian, who was the number 18 seed, and then proceeded to win five games in the final three sets, because he... That was the year he started falling over, a bit like a sort of young goat. Yeah. He would sort of go into I, serving mention and start cramping up and just fall over for no apparent reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, after that match, sort of conditioning was the buzzword. Everyone kept on saying it. It's the difference between the boys and the men's. and But he was only a teenager at the time. I think 18, I'm not sure. Yeah, he would have been 18. Um, and, but conditioning comes. And obviously, he had a good team around him, and and he they obviously put a lot of emphasis on conditioning, and
2: and like that's so Murray as well that that he came on, showed talent, you know, especially off the return of serve, and then they went well, you're not really fit enough. He went okay, uh, and yeah. promptly became, you know, probably within three or four years, the fittest, fastest guy on the tour.
1: Yeah, I mean, he really led the way. He was a bit of a pioneer in terms of conditioning. Obviously, tennis was going through a, a fitness revolution at the time, um, we know that you know Nadal and, and Djokovic would have been doing their own things. But what was different is that, at least in this country, it seemed that Murray talked about it a lot. And yeah. there was a lot of press coverage about, you know, what he was doing in conditioning and really sort of relentless stuff. He'd go over to America for weeks at a time, train with track athletes and, you know, really, really, really pushed himself.
2: And what I always find weird is he never looked like an athlete. He's, he's still like, like at no point in his career do does he like someone plays a drop shot. And I'm like he's going to get there every single time. It's like what he's not going to get there. Like how, how how could he possibly do it?
1: Yeah, he he turned up as a sort of gangly. Uh, uh teenager and you know he didn't look any any different to, to a lot of 18 year olds he just looked like a regular guy um
2: Mass- I mean, an actor like with his mop of hair and yeah. you know not like sort of slightly awkward looking weird in interviews there's that great the great shift that i tweeted actually on uh on the evening you know just after the press conference I'm trying to think it is who he won but he won a five set at Wimbledon and pulled his sleeve up and showed off this like horribly pasty little bicep yeah I was like that's so Murray
1: yeah I I I mean obviously he was very proud of the work he was putting in um tennis players are not always supposed to be hugely ripped um
2: he always but he uh, I feel like that you know as you say that's become him and when you actually look at the injuries that he's been through, you know, at 17 they diagnosed this split patella that he had. I think he was born with the wrong number of ligaments in his ankle.
1: He's got some kind of yeah, uh some something in his in his leg or his knee that was from birth and but I think uh, a lot of what the work was about was about strengthening other areas to compensate for that.
2: Right. And and you can, and you can see that in in everything that he's done in his career. I sort of made a little list before I went on air today of the injuries that he's been through and I've no doubt that I didn't document them all because there's so many of them. But one is this um, this wrist injury he had when he was 20 he snapped some tendons hitting a forehand which in itself sounds horrendous. And then a couple of years later he was sort of not press gang but he said I'll play in the Davis Cup. You know, so he said alright I'll do it. He's 22 and he aggravated it and, and it was serious. And I kind of think that says a lot about him and also a lot about what he wanted to achieve in tennis he didn't just want to be a guy who did well he wants to be a guy who represented his country and play for a team and i don't think any of us will forget that davis cup victory in the final in belgium on clay surface isn't like alongside carl edmund james ward doing something really quite special and you know you'll hear in a, in a little bit our interview with jeremy bates who was of course the guy who gave him that davis cup debut and, and the way he just Walked into that arena and went, yeah, right. This, I can do this. But that Davis Cup winning point against Goffin, he's not. He's not in the point. It's match point, and he's out of it. And he runs down a drop shot, and then he runs down a lob, and then tries to pass him, and it goes wrong. Goffin hits what he thinks is a winner, and Murray knocks it over his head to win the point and the Davis Cup.
1: Yeah, I mean, the best thing about that moment, I watched it again uh, earlier today, is that he sort of sinks to the floor and all of his teammates surround him and, mm. and sort of pile on. And then he kind of remembers and he gets up and he says, get off me. And he goes over to, to shake hands with the Belgium, uh, Belgian team. Mm. Again, says a lot about him.
2: It's almost like that that 30 seconds is everything that we love about Andy Murray throughout his whole career. It's going to be horrible to let him go. And it also leaves a, a really big hole to fill. I don't... Look, Kyle Urban's a great player. Cam Norrie's a great player. I don't know whether either of them are going to hit the heights that Murray has. Three Grand Slams, 41 weeks as a world number one. That great run to year-end number one in 2016. It's a very big hole in British tennis to fill, and and, and who knows if he's going to do it. We're now going to hear an interview with Jeremy Bates, a former British number one in his own right, and also the man who captained Great Britain's Davis Cup team and gave Murray his debut and I started by asking him if he really thought that Andy could get through this year with the injury that he's had.
3: I, I saw quite a lot of Andy last year in, in the States when he was trying to come back, you know, post-Wimbledon um, and, and then, you know, decided to sort of call it a day for uh, the rest of the year because he wasn't fit. It's, it's a long, long period out. Mm. Um, I've actually had that surgery. I know what it's like. No, and really, that's if very you interesting. look at uh, some of the other players who've had it, you know, Gustavo Quirt and Magnus Norman, Leighton Hewitt, um, people who've had that type of operation, it's always been really tough for them to come back uh, given the nature of the the sport and the demands on the body and and how you have to use your body, particularly for somebody like Andy, who tends to um, win matches, a lot of matches, through attrition um, as well. And his mobility has always been one of his greatest strengths. I I mean, that being said, you'll never find somebody who is... Uh, ready to apply, put more attention to detail into um, embracing the challenges that have been put in front of him. His his work and his commitment to overcoming the surgery have been quite exceptional. I mean, there's been no stone left unturned. And, um, you know, I've seen him at various points, had a couple of conversations with his coach about it, and he is so focused and um, resilient in, in many different ways. Um, to try and get back on the tour. And I think he's done everything that he can possibly do now and uh, is ready to have a go. I mean, it, it's, nobody really knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think what's important is the first two or three months, you know, he, he needs to be uh, winning some matches and, and have a pretty good start, um, get some confidence and start enjoying the tour. But, you know, you've got somebody there who just who loves the sport so much that he'll do anything he can to get back out into the competitive environment, and um, I think everybody really would, you know, like to wish him well. I mean, the the game is a, a poorer place without him. Certainly, at the top of the men's game, that's for sure. And um, you know, here's the start of it. So, you know, good luck to Andy, and, and fingers crossed that he can, you know, get off to a good start and his body holds up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. Um, entire for everything crossed. To be honest, I was wondering with with your sort of perspective on it. I wonder if you could cast your mind back because. I think you must have been Davis Cup captain when he broke into the team. He played, I think he lost his actually his first singles match against Stan Wawrinka and then went 11 years without losing a singles rubber. I was wondering if you could talk about the, the character that you encountered even back then. Was it a similarly extremely focused individual?
3: Well, yeah, I, you're right. I mean, I, I put him in, uh, I gave him his Davis Cup debut when I was captain and um, we, I remember that uh, Tim Henman had retired and uh, we had to play in a away tie in Israel and um, that was uh, Andy's first match. I brought him along to the first match in Luxembourg when he was coming off the back of uh, uh, quite a long layoff and he was the best junior in the world at that time but wasn't actually playing. Tim and Greg were playing singles and then uh, later that year, you know, he actually did come into the team. When we were playing uh, that match, Greg played number one singles and, um, and Andy's first actual match, he played the doubles with... Uh, another English guy called David Sherwood and Mm. they had to play against Jonathan Ehrlich and Andy Ram, who were one of the top five teams in the world. Yeah, That's a baptism
2: of fire. That Um, is. And
3: and we played, well, it was, and we played in Tel Aviv in a, in a pretty heated uh, environment. And uh, the two of them beat Ehrlich and Ram. And I mean, it was absolutely astonishing to see him just walk into that environment. And, I'll never forget it, because in the very first game of the match, there was a, a slightly dubious line call, shall we say, and Andy was at the bottom of the umpire's chair, looking up there, <laughs> challenging the umpire first game of his Davis Cup games. No, no, that and, doesn't um, sound like
2: Andy at yeah. all.
3: <laughs> no, but he, he was just quite legitimate, he was quite within his right <laughs> to do it, and um, he was actually right on that occasion as well, but that was the start of it, and... You know, although at that time he probably didn't have the professional habits as you you wouldn't expect any sort of 18-year-old to have, my my goodness, he was the most astonishing competitor. Um, And talk about dealing with pressure and walking into the cauldron and just embracing it like it was the most normal thing in the world. Um, And he was one of these people who who just found a way to win. Mm -hmm. And at that moment in time no one knew how good he would end up being. The match he referred to the following year, we played uh, a, a tie to retain our status in the world group and played against Switzerland, playing Federer and Varenka in Geneva on clay, which was no fun at all. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, he had a really tough match then with uh, Stan Varenka, who at that moment in time was, you know, considerably further ahead than Andy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, remember, I remember all of those sort of uh, moments, you know, like they were yesterday. And, Um, And he's a guy you'd always want in your team, that's for sure.
2: That was Jeremy Bates, the former British number one and Davis Cup captain, speaking to the Love Tennis podcast just hours before Andy Murray's emotional press conference. We can now, of course, speak to this podcast erstwhile co-host, who's going to have to fight Ben for his job when he gets back. George Belshaw is in Melbourne and mostly awake, thanks to some time zones and BBC News appearances as well. George, I can't imagine this is what you thought you'd be doing for the first couple of days, just before the Australian Open. No,
0: not at all, really. I mean, uh, I think we all kind of entered 2019 after that kind of Brisbane match we saw with Murray um, against Duckworth and Medvedev. You know, he was kind of hinting He's, he's still feeling pain in the hip, but it it seems to have all escalated very, very quickly. Um, When I kind of landed in Melbourne at 9am a a couple of days ago, I was uh, treated with the news that he was playing an an impromptu practice match against Novak Djokovic and kind of arrived thinking, oh, this would be a good chance to see what sort of level he's at. And it it became clear quite quickly that this is not going to be a very good tour book for Andy Murray. And obviously it's snowballed and snowballed and, here we are, he's retired, so it's been a pretty chaotic 48 hours in Melbourne for me.
2: You were obviously courtside for that match against Djokovic. My understanding is that Novak didn't get out of third gear and Andy barely got into first.
0: Yeah, I mean, Novak was barely breaking a sweat, to be honest, and Murray, it seemed like he was trying really, really hard. Um, He couldn't couldn't serve well. Um, He's hobbling horribly between points. Uh, I mean, I know he's he'd always kind of had that little hobble, but this was so exaggerated and there was so much kind of pain on his face as he was doing it. And the, I think the most telling thing was at the end of the match, he kind of stayed on court for a couple of minutes talking to his team and he was kind of waving his hands up in frustration. He just looked so upset and despondent mm-hmm. um, dis- about how his condition has been. And obviously, having now been in his press conference the next day, it's all, all kind of come clear. Just how much of an emotional trauma this has been for Andy Murray. It's been a really, really trying couple of years for him.
1: I was just wondering what the atmosphere is like there. I mean, obviously over here it's dominated the headlines and everyone's pretty shocked. But what's the atmosphere like in the press corps and in Australia in general? Yeah, I think, um,
0: to be honest, most journalists were pretty taken aback and quite a lot of them were quite emotional, actually. You know, I think you know many of these guys have spent the last 20 years kind of with Murray they know him pretty well um, and i think everyone's got such a kind of deep rooted admiration and respect for what he's done um, in tennis and uh, for britain and you know it's just such a shame he has to go out like this and i know i know the press get a bit of a bad rap in terms of uh, Cutting down their biggest stars and stuff, but genuinely, every journalist I know really, really wants Andy Murray to succeed. They're devastated. This isn't um, going to end in a kind of fairy tale ending, I suppose. Um, so it's, it was a pretty somber atmosphere um, in the aftermath of it all.
2: Let's uh, move on a little because we're obviously going to hear a lot about Andy Murray. We already have from Jeremy Bates and, and from yourself as well. I want to ask you about the hole that is now left in British tennis and, and the guys who are going to have to try and fill it. Uh, and they, we now have the draw, of course. Carl Edmund, Cam Norrie, Dan Evans. Which of those do you think has done the best out of the, the randomisation that is the Australian Open draw?
0: Um, Cam Norrie, I think, done the best. He's in, he's in good form. Um, obviously, beaten Fritz coming into it, so that's a good uh, confidence boost going into that one. And then I think his second round match will likely be Gael Monfils. Mm. Um, I've got, a, I've got a suspicion Norrie can win that. I think Monfils is patchy at the best of times, and if Norrie comes in in a confident mood as I'm expecting, he can come through that. Um, and then it would be Roger Federer. So I think that would be probably the end of him. Um, for Dan Evans, you
2: such a pessimist. He's got federer George. in the second round.
0: <laughs> well, Dan Evans will probably have federer in the second round if he comes through uh, against <laughs> the qualifier. So that's not great. But I think Carl Edmonds arguably got the shortest draw of all with Thomas Burdick in the first round I mean that's a, a shocker of a draw and I was very worried for him kind of having to pull out of Sydney and losing in the first round in Brisbane because of this you know, huge number of points he has to defend um, having reached the semi-finals last year and now it, it, there's a very very strong possibility he can go out in round one which would be a bit of a disaster and would see him slip down to round world number 30 which isn't how we want to start the year really
1: Just on the subject of Thomas Burdick, um, where's he at uh, at the moment? I mean, is he at all vulnerable?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's obviously just come back from injury. So it's not to say this is like he's playing Burdick in his prime when he's kind of reaching the Wimbledon final back in 2010. But he played very, very well in Doha last week. got to the final um, where he lost to Batista Agut, who, of course, is playing Andy Murray in the first round in Melbourne. Um, and he looked in good form. And I, I mean, you never quite know how the step up will be to the best of five sets. So that'll be a different kind of physical challenge for him. But um, I got the sense from watching Burdick and seeing a few of his interviews after his matches in Doha that he, he's incredibly pumped up. You know, he's he's had a bit of an absence through injury. He wants to come back fighting. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a really, really tough match for Kyle. But having said that, and as Kyle said himself in press yesterday, um he beat Kevin Anderson in round one last year. So he, he knows how to get a big first round win in Australia. And I suspect he'll need a pretty big showing if he's going to get through again.
2: Um, we'll leave Katie Bolton to one side because um, Mr Bates is going to tell us lots about her. But Joe Conta, uh, Harriet Dart as well making it through, although um, I think it's fair to say she's got a bit of a shocker of a draw against Maria <laughs> Um How do you assess their chances in the first week?
0: Yeah, I mean, the draws in general have been Pretty, uh, pretty tough. You mentioned Bolsa there. She's playing Makarova. I think she'll struggle to come through that, to be honest. Mm. Um, bit of news on Bolsa, by the way, this morning. Um, just woken up to a press release saying she's been signed by the same agent as Neymar and David Beckham. <laughs> and that's <laughs> something that's yet to come out. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, I'll put out more on that as I get it. Um, and then uh, Conta is playing Tom Lanovic again. Um, she lost to her last week in Brisbane. Mm. So that's a, a good chance for revenge. That's what Joe said. I think Joe will win that, to be honest. She's got quite a good record when she plays someone who she's lost to a couple of weeks before and normally kind of turns it around so I think, I think she'll come through but then she's probably going to meet Gabi Magruta in round two so that's a bit of a shocker as well mm. um, I've completely forgotten who Heather Watson's playing but I've, I remember looking at it and thinking probably not going to do that yes, well she's got um,
2: Petra Martic the number 31 seed
0: yeah that's going to be a tough one as well um, and then and then Dar- probably
2: going to you know even if uh, she comes through that she end up with Sloane Stevens in the third round who uh, as you know from our predictions podcast is going to have the biggest year of her life
0: Yeah, so you know, there's not really a great draw for the Brits. I mean, Harriet Dart, you might say, is a bad draw in some ways. But um, on on the other hand, it's a chance for her to play against her idol. Mm. She's already come through qualifying, so she's you know probably reached her goal here. And I've been really impressed with her kind of plucky nature this year. You know, she was six-one down in that final qualifying round, and she's come back and won pretty comfortably. And she seems to have really good desire and determination and just quite a plucky, dogged fight in her. So I think that will match up quite well with Sharapova.
1: Of the, the British contingent, are there, are there any players that, whose playing style particularly is suited to this surface? Well, it's a good question. I, I think
0: I think Kyle's probably suits it best and, and Joe's. And, you know, they've both been to the semi finals here before. But I think um, the improvements Kyle's made on his serve means he can really dominate off that. Um, and obviously, we know all about his kind of big booming forehand behind that serve. So he, I think he, the faster conditions will suit him quite well, um, which he'll need against Berdych, because obviously he's a guy with a, a good serve and forehand as well. So that I'm not expecting too many breaks of serve in that one. Um, but I think Contra as well; she um, she enjoys the faster conditions. She likes um, hitting through the hard court quite well with a good pace and keeping the, her opponents on the back foot. Um, But to be honest with her, it's more about how she's feeling the ball on any given day. You know, if she's hot and sees the ball 100%, she she can beat anyone. But it's those days where it's not quite clicking for her, which has been all too prevalent in the last year or so, that kind of length her down a little at the minute. So hopefully she's hotter on round one and she'll need to be very hot in round two if she's going to take out Mburu, that's for sure.
2: Well, George, given that you're uh, basically a ginger and you're in Australia in January, I think you're going to be the hottest of them all. But have a terrific tournament. I'm sure we'll catch up with you during it. And uh, good luck in the first round. See how many Brits you can take out in the first couple of days.
3: (laughs)
0: Cheers, guys.
2: We're now going to hear a little bit more from Jeremy Bates, who is, of course, this year coaching Katie Bolter. And I asked him how he thought she might get on in her first round clash in the Australian Open with a Makarova.
3: It's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, no easy matches uh, out in Australia. Um, the uh, the level of the tournament just seems to be getting tougher and tougher. Somebody she's not played against before. Makarova, is a, a, a very sort of seasoned pro. Somebody who's been in the top ten, you know, been a world class player. She, she she didn't play an awful lot actually at the end of last year, mm. um, post the U.S. Open, and hasn't played any of the warm up tournaments in Australia. So. In some way, that's quite a good thing. Obviously, um, playing against somebody who's fresh into it, but it's going to be a, an extremely difficult uh, match. And uh, but one, I'm you know I'm sure she's relishing the opportunity of uh, playing um, next week. In, in general, um, had a really good couple of weeks out in Australia. The Hopman Cup was excellent. Having to play against Serena Williams, clearly the the highlight of it. And 2019 is is overall is a, a very exciting year. I think it's. My um, progress through the course of two thousand and eighteen was was really exceptional, going from two hundred and breaking into the you know the top one hundred players i think it 's um a, a a season of uh, consolidation sort of learning um what it 's like to be at that level week in week out obviously backing up the success of last year, but more importantly trusting believing a game and uh, and trying to move forward you know higher up the rankings. I think everybody realises it's not a just sort of a, a, a straight journey where you just keep going up and up and up, and there's periods of leveling off. And um, so much of that is uh, is down to experience. You can't buy the experience. You've got to accumulate it. You've got to keep working for it. Um, and uh, it's a it's a relentless process of uh, of trying to do the right thing sort of every single day of the week, so that you you know you're in the right place at the right time to take advantage of the opportunities that come along. But uh, Overall, I mean, right now, Katie's in a really good place and Mm. um, it's tremendously exciting.
2: I was going to ask you about the Hotman Cup. You mentioned it there, you know, sharing a court with the likes of Roger Federer, Serena Williams. How do you think she handled the mental challenge of that? I know it's a little bit of an exhibition tournament, but that that still must have been a big step up for her in terms of level.
3: Oh, massively. I mean, it it was a a big step up uh, and the, (laughs) the thing about it is, that you know, having been to uh, Hotman, uh, invited to Hopman Cup, sort of around October time, you mm. you got to to two two, two, weeks, two months to think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I think it's one of those uh, one of those things where you know to play mixed it's, it doesn't happen very often during the course of the year, but you know a lot of players never get to go on the court with somebody like Serena Williams, the greatest champion I think that women's tennis has seen certainly in the in the last uh, twenty or thirty years, and. Mm. Um, it's you can 't buy that experience um to be on the receiving end of the power that she has the, the that mental fortitude um to play an iconic player and um you 've got to play the ball haven 't you you, you can 't play the name and mm-hmm. I, I I was delighted to see that sort of opportunity um come along and i think she she it took a while for her to get used to it the first set was was pretty tough she lost it comfortably but the second set was very competitive and Katie was up a break early on. She was always ahead during the course of the set. But you know, when it came down to a few key moments, Serena you know, found that little bit of extra um, sort of, uh, strength mentally, and she's, she's used to being in that situation more and more. But I, I think it, uh, it provides sort of inspiration, doesn't it, for any player when, you, when you, you watch people like Serena Williams on TV all the time and wonder what it's like to be on the receiving end and um, I think it's, it's inspirational in the fact that it, it gives you something to work towards. You, you, know, you We can replicate it on a practice court and try and um, you know, sustain the pressure and, and explain to the player you know, how good they've got to be, how quick, how little time they've actually got to hit the ball, but when it comes down to it, um, only the real life experience will, will replicate you know, the actual scenario, and I think she coped with it very well, and, and the second set was, was excellent, and it's about belief at the end of the day and, and, and understanding that, y- you know, you've, you've earned the right to be there to compete against these types of people. And it's an opportunity to really have a go and, uh, and step out of a comfort zone. So I was really pleased with um, what she achieved. And the whole experience of it, you know, being on the court with Federer, there was numerous media commitments around it as well, um, you know, where she she was in sort of group interviews with with the likes of those people. And uh, it's just part of growing. It was it was a fantastic week.
2: I also want to just briefly ask you about Jana Conter because it, it's been it's been a pretty up and down 12, 18, 24 months, maybe even for for Joe. And you know she's coming in with not an easy draw to say the least. I mean, not a draw you'd necessarily expect her to to lose in the first round. But where do you think she is in terms of her career? Because I've always been very impressed with her mentally, but it's been a challenging year by anyone's imagination. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean it was. I mean I think the thing is that um it's very easy to compare what Joe's done with 2017, isn't it? Mm. And that, that was such an exceptional year where she gets to 4 in the world and makes semis at Wimbledon and, and and was really outstanding. And um the thing is that, that what happens in that scenario is that your schedule uh, is then dictated to you with uh when you're ranked at that level and so Joe was playing all the slams, all the premier events. Started off the year, 2018, not quite playing her best tennis. Um, you lose a few matches because of the strength of the opposition, and and it tends to spiral a little bit. Um, sure. And, you know, she, she had a strong end to the year, which was good. She had a really good tournament uh, out of Moscow, and and that improved her ranking um, into the 30s, so she's just missed out on the C. mm But um, it's a a really tough match. I mean, she lost to Tom Lianovich a couple of weeks ago in uh, Brisbane. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, but I I think that you shouldn't pay too much attention to that result. I think where Joe's at, the thing about her is that she is relentless. She is relentless in terms of her attitude, her application, her work ethic. You know, the off-court work that she's done over the course of pre-season, you know, has been really exceptionally good and and you can't cheat the sport so if you're putting that work in all the time sooner or later she's going to be in the right place at the right time and, and get the benefit from uh, from all the work that she's done so you know i i think joe you know is now been out there for a long time she's experienced and understands what it takes to play at the highest level and i think we'll, we'll see you know we've had the leveling off period it's all sort of uh moved on now and she's a she's a better person and a better player for it so i think joe should be looking at 2019 with a good degree of optimism and enthusiasm really for you know for what could be a little bit more an exciting year where she's going to move up the rankings again possibly not right up to the highest level that she was but i think she's she's definitely a player who's who's better than her current ranking
2: just finally, I wanted to, to ask you about the Australian Open as a whole. I'm not going to make you predict anything, but George and I, who co-presents <laughs> this podcast, and he's now out in Australia as well, we've pretty much spent the last three months going, we can't work out who's going to beat Novak Djokovic. Is there anyone out there to beat him?
3: Well, uh, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, I, that's, uh, he, he would be my pick for the tournament as well. I've said that a few times already to people out here. And uh, I mean his level last year was quite exceptional. Um, I, I have to say that being courtside and uh, watching Federer in the Hotman Cup and play all his matches, the level that Federer was uh, performing at last week was <laughs> quite exceptional. Um, it's almost like he's got a ball on the end of a string, um, <laughs> such as his sort of control over it and his ability to manipulate an opponent around the court. But um, I think that... Um, there's big question marks over Nadal. I think you go with Djokovic because of the sort of consistency and, uh, you know, he's, he's giving them all just a, a, a few years as well, which is a big advantage for him. Um, you look at someone like Sasha Zerev, who, you know, plays so well in London and managed to win at the 0-2. Perhaps it's a moment for him to learn from that experience and really challenge these these best players, you know, in the, on the biggest stage in the Grand Slam. But, you know, personally... Djokovic, when you look at his record in Australia, I I can't remember if he what what five of them or something, mm, five or some six Australian opens he's won already, is quite unbelievable. Um, you know, he is probably the person to beat. But it's um it's an interesting field and of course you've got a big question mark over where Nadal is actually at and if physically he is um, you know, up to the up to the challenge. Everybody would hope that he is. And the, the longer you can keep that sort of trio at the top of the men's game, I, I think it's a much richer place, isn't it? It's uh, very exciting.
2: Yeah, it, it feels like we're witnessing one of the great generations of tennis and you know, the longer it goes on, the better. But I fear those days are drawing to an end. Just as this is, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us and I hope it didn't get you out of bed too early. That was, once again, Jeremy Bates, former British number 1 and Davis Cup captain. Interesting to hear he says no one can beat Djokovic. Well, I say interesting. I mean, can can anyone beat Djokovic? I can't remember seeing him at any point in his career play as well as he sort of looked like he was at the end of last year.
1: Well, I mean, I think it was his 2011 season where he just swept everyone before him and he was really hitting through people. But since then, I can't remember a time. If he is going to lose, it's probably he'd have to have a big drop off in, in, in his level.
2: But Do you think, I mean, he's not, he's not, these days as well, doesn't even seem like the guy who would, you know, have a bad day, beat himself up a bit, get a bit angry. Is that, is that likely? Is that something that he could do? Is, is he mentally like that?
1: I, th- I think he's mentally strong in general. There was a, a sort of patch in his career when he was struggling, obviously, with what was going on inside of his head, but... Mm. Um, he always turns up to Australia, or he usually turns up to Australia ready to go. Uh, Australia has sort of thrown up a few upsets over the years. Um, I mean, not- it's his tournament, isn't it? Like, well, it's, it's his, his tournament. He's won six times and he's, you know, usually ready to go.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's kind of goes in his favour a lot. He lost, uh, weirdly, Batista Agut in Doha in the semifinals there in, in three sets. So that's maybe a, a slight blotch on his copybook. And he wasn't invincible last year, you know, Defeats to Hachinov and Zverev, but quite specific moulds of players. And when I look at his draw, you know, Martin Kližan, maybe Tanasi Kokonakis or Denis Shapovalov. Guys who can have big days, but against someone like Djokovic, whose defence is so good, they feel like the wrong sort of match-up. And realistically, I think even when you look at the second section down, you know, his fourth round opponent might be Medvedev or Goffin. Guys who just aren't going to beat him in an Australian Open then you might get i don't know someone like Nishikori or Fognini like again guys who just aren't going to beat him in the Australian Open
1: i'm not really sure i mean how what do you do to is there a set game plan to to beat him i don't i can't think of any way that you can't if he's on his game you can't just stand at the back and trade blows with him um you can try and serve him off the court but he's a fantastic returner hmm. i'm not really sure how as I said, if he's going to lose, it would appear as though he's going to have to uh, really sort of have a bad day.
2: And beat himself. I, I think yeah. that, that's that's the key with any of these guys who you look at and go, eh, maybe maybe and there's no game plan. You just have to let them beat themselves. I think ideally you'd want a Djokovic-Nadal final. That's kind of the obvious thing to say, I know. I just feel like we're in such an unknown with with Nadal now because we just have no idea how fit he is and i sort of feel like he could break down at any given point
1: yeah um it doesn't uh, it doesn't sound as if he's um 100% fit certainly um who knows i mean obviously he could yeah uh, find his feet and uh, totally be fine but i don't see that happening i i think he might um struggle to even make it to the second week
2: really i mean there's uh, i was joking with you just before we came on air saying that he's got Potentially three Australians in the first week. He can do a lot of damage to the home hopes. You've got know, James Duckworth, then potentially Matthew Edden and maybe Alex de Minaur. And Alex de Minaur is, you know, the sort of great white hope of Australian tennis. And he's probably going out in the third round. I mean, if we do think, if we think that that Nadal's in trouble, Edmund in the fourth round, if he can get there, if he if his knee injury isn't so bad, I sort of think he might he might have a real chance in the fourth round against Nadal. I I just start to wonder now, you know, with Murray going. How long's Nadal got? If he, if really realistically, if he's going to keep struggling with injury the way he is, do you think it is just desperately trying to catch Federer?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I'm not really in the game of predicting how long Nadal's going to play. I remember years and years ago, people the so-called experts were saying that he would break down by 26 because of the sheer pressure on his uh, joints, especially his knee and his. Uh, and his foot as well um, People have been writing off, him off for a long, long time He's obviously struggled with his fitness a lot But he does have this knack of coming back And stringing together months on end of fitness And winning Grand Slams Well, winning the French um, <laughs> but, Are you uh,
2: writing off his other six Grand Slam titles? No, no, it's no Double no. what Andy Murray's <laughs> won his entire career <laughs>
1: um, But look, uh, yeah Nadal uh, defies... Um, predictions uh, you know time after time and uh, it'd be crazy to to predict when he's gonna pack in
2: and i'd like to say that we've written off andy murray too early but i actually think that perhaps for the first time in his life andy murray's written himself off at this point
1: yeah i mean this one's in the books really um unless he's uh, he's not even the type of person to to exaggerate or to mislead the the media um no this this looks like the end
2: yeah sadly so uh i think we thought we'd end with some funny notes about Andy Murray. I think he is an often misconstrued character. He comes across as a bit awkward and a bit difficult. i don 't think he is that. I think he's shy. I think he's got a a really funny sense of humor and and that does come across every now and again
1: it does he's a super intelligent guy um I mean we could talk about all day about his uh advocacy for uh women 's equality on the tour and uh, you know in general um He's also uh, very, very sharp. His fellow players say how a dry a sense of humor he has. Yeah. And it just reminds me of uh, one time, I can't remember which year it was, but Wimbledon was, was filming a segment. Um, and they got the players for a sort of Vox Pop uh, at uh, Indian Wells or uh, Miami. And they were interviewing them in, about how you, uh, how you eat your strawberries. <laughs> And uh, all the other players were saying, well, with, with a bit of sugar, or, or not at all, I want to stay fit for the tour, or, you know, if I'm feeling naughty, maybe some cream, and it just pans to him, and he says, with my fingers. <laughs> and it just sort of, yeah, just that dead pan. He knew exactly what he was saying, and he's just, he likes to have fun.
2: Yeah, and he, he, I hope that, you know, whatever he does, we see a lot of him, because he's obviously one of, one of the greatest British tennis players of all time. You're up there with Virginia Wade and Fred Perry, and... He's obviously ahead of and Henman because of what he's achieved. could very
1: champion. easily argue he's the finest. Uh, yeah. Fred Perry is from a different era and obviously won a lot of Grand Slams, but you could very easily argue that... Tim
2: or Wade, I guess, right? Like They're the, they're the two you sort of put up there. Yeah. It's yeah. difficult to re anyone else, but hopefully he will be around a lot. He's done a bit of punditry and I think done quite well with that. I think he, when he loosens up a little bit on the punditry, he's perfect because he's tactically very, very astute mm. and he's very bright. Uh, which is more than that can be said for Love Tennis podcast hosts. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll see you again during the Australian Open. Hopefully there'll be some Brits left when you come back.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.